Welcome to the Inquisitive Tourist. My name is Nate Ralph and thank you for joining me. For those of you already listening, welcome back. And if this is your first episode, welcome to our ever-growing community of worldwide listeners. I checked a few days ago and we're now in 63 countries. We're going to have an emotionally charged episode today that's in store. That's absolutely for sure. All over the world, many women and their partners dream of starting their own families. It doesn't matter where we're from. It transcends boundaries and culture. And if it wasn't for this basic human desire and need, the human race would cease to exist. It's as simple as that. Falling pregnant, however, and going full term is far from straightforward. A host of things can go wrong on the journey to holding your new baby in your arms. Well, my guest today is a fascinating man whose work in reproductive immunology is equally as fascinating as it is heartwarming. He helps women with great success to fall pregnant and stay pregnant through full term and enjoys excellent rates of success. Well, let's meet him. His name is Dr. Hassan Shihata. Dr. Hassan, welcome to the show. Hello, Nate. Thank you very much for inviting me, and I'm really looking forward to uh, to this podcast. Uh, I'm a great fan of your uh, podcast, and uh, and I hope today I can shed some light on the work I do. That's extremely kind of you to to say, Dr. Hassan. I really, really do appreciate it. So, yeah, to to kick us off, um, your formative years then were in Khartoum. Now, many people might say, well, where's that? Khartoum is in Sudan. So what ages did you live there? What was life like, Dr. Hassan? So I was born in uh, Sudan in 1964. I was actually born um, in a a town called uh, Madani, which is about 100 miles from Khartoum. So it's like the second uh, largest city after Khartoum. Mm. Khartoum, of course, is the capital. And I was born to uh, uh, my late father, Professor Ahmed Shihata, who uh, was a maxillofacial surgeon, and uh, my mother, who by training uh, is a lawyer, but uh, she opted to be a housewife. Mm-hmm. And I was, I'm the eldest of my uh, siblings, who so were five of us. Um, I grew up in, in Sudan uh, until I graduated, really, uh, from medical school in 1988 and then moved to uh, London in 1991. Um, actually, interestingly, I spent three years of my young life in, in, in London because my father came here to do his um, postgraduate degree in maxillofacial surgery in the Royal College uh, of uh, Dentists. And um, uh, so I was here between 1967 and 1970. Uh, I, I recall from my parents, I used to go to a, a nursery in Russell Square because they used to live in Russell Square. Mm. So, um, so yeah, so I grew up in, in Khartoum and... Um, uh very i think i have to admit i had a very lucky and privileged life uh, um and uh although i was born in medini uh we moved to khartoum uh, about a year later uh where i then continued to be there uh, as i've said until i went to medical school and and uh, i went to uh, uh a very special school i would say it's called uh Comboni college uh which is a school mainly set up by um, uh, priests and nuns of the Comboni uh, order um, as part of the uh, Christian mission uh, in, in, in Africa. 
Mm. Um, so uh, there's a lot of history with Daniel Comboni, the founder of the school, who was there in the uh, between the 1850s and the, and the 1900s. And 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 I was lucky and privileged enough to go to this very very special school. Mm, that's a, a wealth of information. That's quite incredible. So you said you were the eldest of five. Um, so you're a mix. You have boys, sisters, and brothers as well, or is it just uh, just? So, so yeah, so actually, interestingly, so I, um, my background really is a mixture of Sudanese and Egyptian. So I have a lot of Egyptian blood and as a lot, a lot of families in Sudan who would have um, immigrated their grandparents from Egypt to Sudan uh, and vice versa. So, um, so I was um, born, uh, uh, as I said, 1964, and I have a sister, Shaza, who is a dentist who uh, kind of followed my father's career. Um, and she currently lives in Cairo. Um, and then I have uh, another brother, Hossein, who is uh, uh, an architect and he currently lives in Dubai. And then my other brother, Mohammed, and he's an electric engineer and he also lives in Dubai. And then my younger sister, uh, who, believe it or not, she was born in 1988 on the day I graduated. <laughs> wow. So, <laughs> yes, uh, she's a doctor as well. So she's a GP uh, based here in the UK. Doctors and electrical engineers, that's, that's amazing. And your mother, you said, was a lawyer, but decided to become a, a housewife. Correct. That's so um, It is, it is. So, uh, and um, so, you know, big family. Uh, I think she, uh, she found it easier to, to become a housewife. <laughs> uh, um, but I can tell you, she runs the law in the house. <laughs> as is often often the case but uh well it's it's, it's law, law and order no pun intended so. <laughs> law and order absolutely no but that's quite amazing uh because i mean you know family's priority and uh i mean being a lawyer is is an incredible career but um evidently she, evidently she she must have given her heart into her family so you know and she's brought up five kids all professionals that's that's amazing absolutely and and um uh so we we my father actually um, was one of the first dental surgeons in Sudan um, who actually trained in um, so trained in, in the UK. So actually, interestingly, so my grandfather was uh, was uh, uh, an agricultural engineer, and he was sent by uh, Egypt to help agriculture in Sudan at the time, and uh, and that's where he met my grandmother. And got married in, in Khartoum and stayed there until my father was at the age of probably, I think, 14 or 15 before they moved back to Egypt. But my father is one of 13 mm. uh, brothers and sisters. <laughs> Goodness me. So it's, exactly. So it's interesting. So if you find the, the, the kind of the, 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 the eldest five are kind of more Sudanese and they even still have the dialect uh, of Sudan while the younger um, siblings uh, have Egyptian dialect because they were born and raised in Egypt. So my father actually went to secondary school in Egypt and and then uh, Cairo University to study dentistry. Actually, in Sudan at the time, there was no um, dentistry studies at university level. But because he felt more Sudanese and all his friends were Sudanese, as soon as he graduated, he decided to go back to Sudan and worked... Um, in Port Sudan, which is on the Red Sea. And that's where he met my mother, uh, whose uh, father, is my grandfather, uh, is uh, a civil engineer. And he was working at the time in, in, in Port Sudan. And that's where they met and they got married uh, there uh, before, again, my grandfather moved to, to, to Madani. And that's why 
uh, I was born in Madani. So my father, I, I, I gathered at the time, was working between Khartoum and Madani. Uh, and that's uh, and then eventually everybody moved to Khartoum. Mm, what a beautiful, uh, rich story! That's that's a beautiful tapestry that you've just given us there. And what I would like to ask as well, if I can, Doctor Hassan. I mean, you said obviously you've come from this lovely, privileged uh, background. W- w- could I ask if there were any low points in your time in Sudan? Because uh, my father is actually from Sudan, and I know that the country can, you know, it can have its its challenges there. Oh, uh, challenges. We're going through one now, as you know, because of the recent uprising we've had. We mm. got rid of uh, General Omar al-Bashir, who was um, ruling Sudan uh, from 1989 uh, to 2019. Uh, a, a horrible combination of uh, Islamic fanatics and military. Um, and then... Um, we thought we got rid of of these guys um, in 2019, and we started to have a transient government uh, with a kind of planning to have elections in 2022. Uh, and of course, uh, last minute, another military coup on just on the 25th of October, a few months ago. And uh, at the moment, there is a lot of killings and, and death uh, 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 martyrs. It's an awful situation. So... Uh, speaking about this kind of experience, so I, interestingly, I was born in 1964, and that's the time, uh, and I was born 25th of October. 21st of October 1964, we had an uprising of the people, and we managed to um, get rid of the military government, which was governing Sudan following um, uh, independence uh, from the British government in 1956. And, and on 1964, very famous date, 21st of October. Um, so kind of, uh, I feel kind of a, a connection to, to such uh, kind of importance of, uh, of uh, civil governments and, and, and freedom. Uh, 1985, when I was in medical school, we had um, uh, um, an, another uprising after General Rumeri uh, kind of toppled the civilian government in 1969, um, which was only there for five years. But in 1985, we had another uprising uh, with a civilian government until 18, 1989, and that's when we had the military coup. Now, interestingly, I went to medical school uh, in Khartoum. So Khartoum Medical School, uh, at the time when I went in, it was the only medical school in Sudan. Hmm. Now we have several medical schools, but at the time... They only took 120 students for the whole of Sudan. You have to be kind of the Very cream good. of the cream to get, <laughs> yeah. Into, yeah, to get into, absolutely. So all the hundred thousands of students, only 120 are taken into medical school. So we had a fantastic um, kind of training in medical school. And um, uh, I graduated in 1988. And in June 1989, we had this military coup by General Omar al-Bashir, 30th of June. And by the um, 7th of July, I was unfortunately imprisoned um, mm. um, as a political prisoner wow. uh, uh, by, the, uh, uh, by, by this government. And it's, I'm not claiming to be highly political, but, uh, you know, I, uh, I kind of, I don't belong to, uh, belong to any parties, but uh, what happened is that when the um, uh, when the, mili- uh, the military coup d'etat happened, they decided uh, to 
basically imprison all unionists, uh, all political leaders and so on. And, and I was the representative of the junior doctors in Khartoum. And uh, because all the well-known unionists of the Sudan Medical Association, which is equivalent of the British Medical Association, like BMA, they were all put in, 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 in jail. And people then started looking up to me and saying, well, actually, what are you going to do about it? So I decided to go up on a, a literally on a, a soapbox and said to the people that we have to resist this uh, coup d'etat. We have to uh, kind of uh, show some civilian uh, disobedience and so on. And of course, that was my mistake. And uh, uh, that night, I was basically taken into custody uh, and stayed there for a few months. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of speechless right now. That, what a crazy story. So you, you were in prison for three or four months, did you say? That's right. That's the first time. So I was put in twice. So the first time um, we were put in this horrible, horrible kind of incarceration places called um, nicknamed ghost houses mm. because nobody knew where you were. So actually... We were not imprisoned by police or by military. We were actually imprisoned by um, by so-called secret police. And, and I mean, so, did you know where you were, though? Or were you blindfolded and taken there? Blindfolded, yeah, blindfolded oh and taken in there. Oh, my goodness so, me. That's ridiculous. And, uh, yeah, absolutely awful. And it was a tough time because we were tortured, uh, we were beaten, and uh, we were given a very hard time. Um, I had some of my colleagues there who were killed, I remember. Actually uh, killed? Killed, yes. Yeah. Uh, so uh, and, and you witnessed this as well? I, I w- didn't witness the actual death, but I can hear it. And I know the, uh, of the fact that uh, uh, there is a, a very well-known, famous um, kind of uh, doctor, uh, who famous as in because of the story, what happened to him, uh, and his brother, uh, was my kind of uh, classmate. So uh, Dr. Ali Fadul um, was with us in these ghost houses and he was basically beaten to death with a baseball bat. Goodness um, me, that's just absolutely wild. That was uh, uh, awful. And I I recall uh, kind of the that he, then what, he, what happened is that they've taken his body to one of their military kind of police stations to try to, to try to do something about how, what they're going to say to his family. And they kind of made up a, uh, a post-mortem claiming the cause of death to be uh, cerebral malaria. And it's important to tell you this story because there's an interesting part to this story that will come out years later. Um, so there was a doctor who uh, falsified the post-mortem at the time who belonged to the Islamic party. Mm. And, and, um, his parents, so the parents of the of Ali, uh, refused to accept the postmortem. Uh, eventually, they found a decent uh, forensic examiner who, of course, did the right report and said the cause of this was basically uh, trauma to the head, not cerebral malaria, as was made up. Um, roll off the years, and I'm in the UK, um, and that's I would say. Uh, in 1999, 
I started my training as in a specialty called maternal medicine. Mm. Maternal medicine is basically to look after pregnant women with medical disorders like diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, kidney disease, etc. Mm. And I was training with a very well-known professor, Catherine Nelson Piercy, who is one of the leaders in that profession. And I remember she invited me to her house for dinner. And her husband, uh, Professor John Lumley, is a professor of cardiovascular and um, surgery at Barts. So Catherine Nelson Piercy uh, was working at Gaza St. Thomas's. That's where I trained with her. Uh, anyway, so we're sitting at dinner and then uh, Professor John Domley said to me, oh, Hassan, uh, I gather you're from Sudan. I said, yes. And he said, amazing. My current trainee, you know where this is going, isn't it? <laughs> My current trainee is also from Sudan. Mm. And I said, wow, amazing. What's his name? And then he told me the doctor's name and... Um, and his name was Ahmed. Um, and I said to him, are you sure? And he said, yes. So I said to him, this is the guy who used to come to these ghost houses to actually examine us, to allow those secret police people to beat us more. So he will come and say, yes, he can get more beating. I, I'm a little you bit can, confused. So, whatever. So, you've got a medical professional, yes, telling the police, "Hey, you can beat yeah. this guy up more because he can yes. take it." Yes. Uh, that, so, he, that's, I mean, he, that's despicable. He, despicable. So, and I, and so, of course, Professor Lumley got kind of, kind of startled by what I said, and he said, uh, "Hassan, obviously, I'm, I'll take your word for it, but I, I've just met you. This guy doesn't sound like." Um, like this so i said well it's it's true so i didn't realize he was in london at the time doing his training so i then contacted um um a journalist at the time uh who was in the times i think his name was tim kelsey i think he's a quite mm. a famous journalist mm. and i mentioned that to him and and that's when investigation started we got the gmc involved and I remember meeting the DMC lawyers, the General Medical Council, and actually they had collected so much evidence. So I then put them in touch with a lot of people who were imprisoned with us at the time in these ghost houses who happened now to be in the UK after a lot of us have fled Sudan. And they gathered, gathered they felt they gathered enough information to take him to court and try him because this chap, actually had a British passport. So he was born in, in the UK, although he's Sudanese. So he had a British passport, uh, born in the UK, and they felt that they had a strong case to try for the first time in the history of the UK, a British citizen who have committed uh, atrocities uh, 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 against human rights abroad. I just can't really compute, if I can use that word, like on an emotional and mental level, why a medical professional who surely by the definition of a medical professional, you, you go into that because you love people, you want to help people, would go and essentially help th these people beat other people. It, it, do, it goes against the very nature of why you would go into medicine of any form. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and um, anyway, eventually, eventually, 
uh, he fled the country uh, because he realized that it, you know, the circle was getting closer and closer to him. So he fled the UK before it went to trial. I feel at least I have prevented him from finishing his training. Um, sadly, he went to Sudan and then he was appointed as a senior, one of the most senior doctors uh, in the country because, of course, he belonged to the, that Islamic fanatic party who ruled the country for over 30 years. So um, so this is kind of, uh, uh, if you can say that's a low point, that's probably one of my lowest points because it was tough times, very tough times that, uh, where, uh, where we were in those ghost houses. The, uh, the beating uh, actually was tough. But for me, the worst situation I had was the, um, the sleep deprivation, which I still suffer from. Oh, they didn't allow you to sleep, you mean, as a form of torture? Correct, as a form oh, of torture. I've heard that's one of the worst forms, even though many people is, wouldn't think of it, but it is. I can tell you, it. You know, I, for me, that was the worst, worst. So we were beaten, you know, they would kind of tie you up to trees and, you know, after they beat you and they kind of throw at you kind of salty water and all that. You know what? Just give me five minutes of sleep would have been... some sort of solace and that was tough so i mean what in a 24-hour period they were allowing you to sleep for just what like 10 minutes here five minutes here i mean how how did that work if 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 if, any so basically they will come at like uh you know you think you're about to sleep and they will come in just banging on the door sometimes they go in and start kicking you throwing water at you or wake you up try to tell you go and do some exercise it's kind of all a part of the sleep deprivation kind of tactics as torture and then they start interrogating you. They played Russian roulette with us, uh, with you know those kind of infamous putting the uh, one bullet on the on the gun, in a gun, and try to to try to torture you. Um, I, it, it wasn't pleasant. And some of my, because uh, I was a young man, but some of my senior uh, kind of colleagues and people who were there, they were denied medicine. So this is the, this was the job of this guy. So somebody diabetic, he will come and assess how much time they can tolerate having high kind of sugars without their medication it's all part of kind of mental and physical uh, torture so they were really 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 professional in how to uh, kind of in a bad way how they can torture people in, in those ghost houses and remember all of us who were there were academics mainly doctors lawyers mm. judges um and so on uh- could I ask, I don't know if this is getting, I mean, because I'm, I'm assuming you must have experienced some kind of PTSD after this or? I did. I did. It took me a long time to recover. Um, it took me a long time to speak about it. Um, so so the way it ended, uh, so I was uh, kind of in prison twice. Um, and I remember the way that the, the second time, mm. uh, b- because my parents didn't know where I was. Because remember, not only you're worried about yourself, but you're worried about your parents who don't know what happened it, to you. Are you dead? Where are you? Exactly. Well, exactly. Uh, what, but what I don't understand, uh, Dr. Hassan, I mean, what? why didn't they kill you? I mean, <laughs> it sounds like they could have done because other people, you heard they, beatings. They, they, they could have done, but I, I feel that compared to other people, I had not as much torture and much beating because I, I wasn't really political. I wasn't, mm. I didn't really belong, belong to a political party. They had main issues in particular against the left-wing parties. Mm. So ma- mainly parties, I kind of, you know, the communist party, things like that. Mm. They were the people who were given very hard time. Mm. And, and, and then I, the, way, the day I was released, 
um, uh, I was told that they're gonna they're going to assassinate me. What? So they said to me, yeah, they said to me, we're going to assassinate you. And um, uh, so, what would you like to eat? Um, You're being serious. They, they actually asked you what you want. I am. Yes, they said, what do you want to eat? Uh, you can have a shower. They got me, a, 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 you know, in Sudan, we wear jalabiyas, you know, like mm, the, yes, yes. Uh, the white kind of uh, the rope, yeah. Big, the rope, yeah. So they got me a nice clean one. They shaved my head uh, completely bald. And, and they said, we're, gonna, we're going to assassinate you now. So they blindfolded me, put me in a car. And I, I genuinely, genuinely, Nate, thought I was going to be assassinated and killed. And, and then suddenly the car slowed down. They opened the door and they pushed me. And I fell out of the car. I mean, was the car and going I, at speed or? No, not, they slowed down. Okay. Um, and, and I then kind of uh, uh, laid down on the floor in shock, blindfolded. And I didn't know what to do. I just stayed there because I don't know what's going to happen to me. And then suddenly I heard somebody coming to speak to me and says, are you okay? And, and took the blindfold from me. And I realized there was somebody just passing by and they basically threw me on the side road uh, near the mosque, near my house. And I could see actually my house. Near so actually house? that's how what, they, so they knew, they knew yeah. where you lived. Or was they this knew where I lived. That's, no, no, no. That, you know, that's how they assessed, That's how they arrested me. They arrested me from the house a second time. Uh, remember, they had the secret police, so they know everything about everyone. So basically, they knew they're going to release me, but they said they probably took that as a joke, as a laugh. Let let, me, let us scare him even more, even when we're releasing him. This is how how kind of um, vindictive these people were. I mean, I'm kind of speechless. It's, I've had a lot of uh, guests on with fascinating stories, but I'm, I'm genuinely quite, I don't even know where to start with this story. I mean, obviously, thankfully, you're here, you're telling us the story, you're alive. But what is it that, okay, you said you were less political. So is that the only reason they decided to, to release you and to show you mercy? But, yes, yes. I wasn't that important for them anymore. Uh, they, 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 they Basically, while I was there, the main, the main, um, kind of question they were always asked that they want me to write, to sign a paper to say that I work against the government and that I will not do that again. And, and obviously, because at the time, remember, I was a junior doctor. Mm. I just graduated. I was a house officer. Mm. Um, and I didn't have that political kind of background understanding. But some of the kind of other inmates said to me who have been there, done that, had the T-shirt, and they said, be careful, don't sign anything, because if you sign anything, that will kind of, will haunt you. They will bring you back again and again and again. They will try to push you to do other things. So I just refused for months and months every night, sign this, otherwise you'll get beaten, sign this, otherwise. And they slap you and they do the, the sleep deprivation and so on. I just refused to sign. And I think eventually they just gave up on me and released me. So, I mean, when you were released and you woke up, I mean, if that was me, I would have, it's almost like I'm, I'm imagining this now. I feel like I'm watching a movie in my head. Uh, it's almost like I would feel like I'm going mad. Like I'd be like, am I hallucinating here? Like what, what, what is going on? Am I on, you know, have I got drugs in my system or what, what's going on here? I, I'd, I'd almost have to slap myself thinking, is this real? Is this real life? For a long time, it felt like that for the year after that. It took me a year to recover. A whole um, year. 
a whole year. I couldn't work. I couldn't do anything. And that night, when, so that day when I was released, I think it was about four o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, I walked home uh, barefooted with the help of some people on the street. You know, mm. your father, having been to Sudan, uh, you know, Sudanese people are very kind people. Oh, very kind. Uh, uh, and so people have helped me. I said to them, that's my house. I went there, uh, went to my parents. And my father said to me, you're flying tonight. I said, flying where? He well, said... So, sorry, if I could just hold you there. Sorry, Dr. Hassan, to interrupt. So this is the day you got back? That Sorry, the next day your father said you are going to leave Sudan? No, not the next day. The very same day. The same, my father the said, same day? The very same day, yes. My father said to me, Hassan, you cannot stay here. This is getting very dangerous. This, this is now your second time. Um, I think you need to leave the country. I've already prepared... Uh, a ticket and a passport and a plan. So my father had the foresight to think about my future. And actually, I've already arranged um, with, at the time, he had a very good relationship with the Egyptian ambassador in Khartoum. Mm. And and basically, they have agreed that as soon as I re- get released, they will fly me to Cairo. Of course, my name was in the airport. Uh, so you can't really just fly like normal people. So I recall my, um, he said to me, go and say bye to your grandparents, go and say goodbye to your fiance. I was at the time engaged to my, my now wife, Salma, who was also my classmate from medical school mm. and, and go and say to her that, um, goodbye. And you will meet her sometime in the future. You will get married to her sometime in the future. <laughs> can, you, can, you, can you imagine this? This is like a movie. This is, I'm actually it, speechless. It, it, so, so, so I, uh, I said, Dad, I don't really want to do that. And he said, No, uh, that's not an option. To be honest, I was so confused, so traumatized. I just followed what he said, and I'm glad I did that. And and then I I went and definitely said said my goodbyes to everybody I know. And then uh, two o'clock in the morning, my father drove me to the ambassador's house. The ambassador's house in Khartoum is near the airport. Uh, the, uh, the, the airport in, in Khartoum is actually in the middle of the city. Interesting <laughs> kind mm-hmm. of placement for an airport. Mm. And I recall the, the flight was 4 o'clock in the morning. At um, half past 3, uh, I said goodbye to my dad. And, he, and, and, um, uh, and the ambassador himself drove me into the tarmac, into the plane without going through any passport checks. <laughs> that's that's uh, almost like James Bond treatment right there. It is like James Bond treatment. I don't know how they did that, but, you know, uh, my no father passport, good No passport, no just straight tarmac nothing, boom, onto the plane. Nothing, nothing. And ended up uh, basically on the plane and then arrived in, in Cairo. And when I arrived in Cairo, they actually said to all the passengers, please don't move. Uh, and then this um, very senior policeman comes in and says, Hassan Shahata, they knew where I was sitting. And I said, yes. He said, come with me. And I said, oh, my God, what's happening now? And he took me with him. And then as soon as I left the plane, my uncle, uh, who actually lives in Egypt and is in the police, was waiting for me. And he said, come in, Hassan. I have your passport here with me. And apparently that was prepared. Everything was prepared. And I went in. What amazes me about that story is that 
the fact that your your father had the foresight to prepare all of these things so it, it was yeah. evident that he was hopeful for your release because you did tell me earlier that you know your your family potentially didn't know if you were alive so no they didn't know so, so he it's, it's very heartwarming to and incredible to think that they had the emotional strength to think no we're going to stay positive and hopeful that our son is going to be released and we're so confident and hopeful that we're going to prepare the passport and the ticket so that when he is released he can go and he can be saved. He can go. I mean, that's amazing because the the strength, because they didn't know if you were alive or dead. I, 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 I agree. Um, I, as I said, my father just had that foresight and, and I'm grateful for his uh, action plan because otherwise I don't know whether I would have spent, because some of my colleagues and friends and people I know, they spent years and years imprisoned in these ghost houses. So I was lucky enough to escape uh, eventually, and leave the country. And then I was not allowed back in Sudan for about 10 years until there was an amnesty uh, for people to come back. Uh, and, and and I went, I managed to go back then and go and see my friends and, and the rest of my extended family. It's incredible. If I could just regress quickly a few years to your time at Comboni College, because uh, another interesting facet is that after I contacted you, I did a bit more research. I actually, um, you know, and then I found out that you went to Comboni because my own father uh, who was born and raised in Khartoum in Sudan, um, he he also went to Camboni. Could you just tell us maybe, even if it's just one quick fascinating story or one very happy story from your time there at Camboni College? Of, of course. Uh, um, before, actually, can I say something first about Camboni before I actually go to that? Of because course. I, interestingly, um, we were having this discussion uh, and I tried to think about it today, just I know I was going to have this podcast, but I was thinking about my my time in Sudan and stuff and, and I remember at the funeral of my father uh, uh, in, in Khartoum, that was back in 2011. And a lot of my Komboni mates and friends who still living in Sudan, they came for the funeral. And we were all sitting there chatting about uh, kind of our relationships, how we kept it kind of strong all these years, despite some of us have gone to different countries. And what fascinated us kind of of the discussion is that the amazing tolerance we have learned from from Comboni College, because Comboni College was basically a school for people from different backgrounds. So we had the Christians, the Jewish, the Muslims, um, you know, the um, uh, Hindus. There was every single culture, every single uh, kind of... um, uh, expatriate you can think of went to that school and i was saying to them that learning tolerance this was happening in the 1970s mm. something they're trying to introduce now in europe and it was there happening 50, so they were essentially you're saying they're 50 years ahead there 50 years ahead you know we're still talking about it in the uk how to teach our kids tolerance uh, ethnic tolerance and 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 racial tolerance we were having this back in, in, in the 60s and the 70s. It's amazing. So how wonderful, how wonderful was that school? Um, they had but, a lot of foresight, didn't they? Evidently. A lot of foresight. So lots of funny stories, actually. So um, one of the um, kind of the funny parts, of course, of that is that um, um, in the final year of, of, of secondary school, I was in charge of the uh, ringing the bell <laughs> between, between um, classes so, uh, because my my seat and our class was next to the bell, so I was nominated to be in charge of the bell. So, so I used to actually be told by colleagues, for example, 
you know, we have an exam today, Hassan. Can you please extend the, the bell a little oh, bit? Yeah. So, so sometimes I give it an extra five minutes or a uh, short of five minutes if the if the class was was boring or was uh, was short. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, so so but lots of uh, f- funny stuff and and one of uh, I remember at the time of the um, uh, um, the, do you remember? I probably you wouldn't remember this because you're young. Nate. There was something called the six million dollar man at the time was was like a very famous American. Uh, sitcom uh, and this bionic man uh, was created and used to run Steve Austin he used to run in a very funny way and when we were doing um, military training like CFF um, uh, kind of a school if you don't do something right they will ask you to run around the the pitch so as a kind of a, a punishment and we all used to all run like slow motion similar like Steve Austin trying as much as possible to to do it slowly of course because you don't want to do too many rounds and at the same time waste time so uh, yeah we, we had funny times and and and, and uh, the school was wonderful lots of well, lots of uh, stories lots of sports so uh, a very very good school and getting to your profession and what you do would you say that it, it was at Camboni that you started to develop your your academic interests i mean at what age would you say you know if you if you're thinking back to your childhood at what age were you dr hassan when you thought you know what i want to become a doctor or i want to go into medicine and I, and i want to help people when did that become evident in your life so one of the reasons Camboni is 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 quite well known in africa and in the middle east and and probably your father will tell you this it was renowned for its excellence in performance. And actually, if you look at the people who graduated from there, uh, some of them were prime ministers in Sudan. Some of them uh, kind of led kind of the biggest jobs. It's like the Eton of the UK, if you like. Mm, mm. And our, our motto, which I always kind of, kind of I thought to think about it um, a lot. It's, our motto is always more, always better. Mm. And, and actually, that was embedded in us. So we were always pushed to study and train and, and do things to kind of a, almost a perfection. At the time, we didn't like it. But you realize after you, after later in life, that actually that actually created in you something really special. Mm. Um, um, I always knew I wanted to go into some sort of medicine or dentistry, because I kind of, I, I like my father's profession as being a dentist. Um, eventually, I, I ended up doing medical, medical school. So I, I kind of from about age 14, 15, I knew I wanted to do medicine. And I, and I'm, and therefore I, I, I did that. And I, I, I loved every bit of it. I love my profession. That's amazing. And then when was it that you, you started to specialize in, in reproductive issues and gynecology? So, um, I um, so I came to the UK in 1991 mm. and and did my training here. Um, and during my training, I used to see a lot of patients coming with miscarriages and pregnancy losses. And watching my bosses at the time, my senior colleagues, saying to them that, um, "Sorry, honey, uh, go and try again." I just felt it's kind of inconvenient because you sit in the clinic and. These couples with four and five and six and sometimes 10 miscarriages are looking up to you, asking you, why is it happening? And I just couldn't understand, why can't we tell them what's happening? And I realized at the time that we, we haven't done enough research mm. uh, into, that, into that problem. And it is like, it's a, it's a Cinderella service. It, it, it wasn't felt as important 
uh, for gynecologists. Uh, people were more concerned about today cancer treatment and endometriosis and, you know, uh, IVF. But miscarriages, they keep saying to them, look, you're making a baby. Eventually, you're going to be lucky and get it right. And for me, that wasn't satisfactory. So that's why I dedicated my life and training into finding out why couples miscarry. Mm, that's, that's amazing. And could I ask now, if I could just transgress ever so slightly, but, but I'll try and uh, show the audience where I'm going with this one. Could I ask you, do you have a big family yourself? I mean, uh, I know you come from a big family, but do you have children? I do. I, I'm lucky okay. enough. I have, I have, yeah, I have a big family. I have four children. Wow. Okay. Um, and as you know, I, I come from five and uh, sibling. I were five with my siblings, and also my wife uh, um, has six siblings, and uh, my grandfather had uh, thirteen children. So we we like big families. And um, so yeah, so so my eldest Ayman is twenty eight. He just got married recently. Uh, he's a uh, He's a lawyer. Uh, he works in corporate law in London, mm. uh, and uh, with his lovely wife uh, Sarah, they got married in in uh, uh, recently in August, twenty twenty one. And uh, my second child, um, Amjad, we call him AJ. Uh, he actually studied um, business and economics in in uh, Nottingham University. He's now working as a chef uh, oh, wow. in a, re- a restaurant called Fallow in Mayfair. Mm. And then Aya, my third child, uh, Aya, uh, so AJ is 25, Aya uh, is uh, 20, uh, and she uh, is studying uh, politics uh, in Edinburgh University. And my youngest, Maya, uh, she's doing A-levels this year, and um, she's going to do English uh, literature. um, uh, so I'm hoping, I'm hoping that I won't have to go to Liverpool because I know I support Liverpool. So oh wow, you must be a big uh, Mo Salah fan then, right? With the Egyptian connection, I am. I, I am. <laughs> oh, so uh, that's a uh, you know one of the questions that people ask me always, Nate, because they think of my Egyptian connection and the Middle Eastern connection. Whether uh, I support Liverpool because of Mo Salah? Oh I really? To them, you get actually, asked that. I, that's I, yeah, but I say I support Liverpool from the 1980s and actually. I don't know if you know this, but Liverpool, the great team of Liverpool with the Dalgleish, Kenny Dalgleish, mm-hmm. the king with uh, Ian Rush and Grobler and Soonis, they came to Khartoum in 1982 in no December. Way. I and know. I attended the match. I attended the match there. That was the, kind of the, the match of the, kind of, of the century for Sudan, of course. And, uh, and of course, I, I used to know about Liverpool because we used to watch them on TV or hear it on the radio. I'm a, um, kind of on the BBC but then watching them, I got hooked. And of course, and, and I became then a fan uh, since then. That's absolutely amazing. A nice little gem added into this podcast that, uh, that you're a Liverpool fan. Did Liverpool win that game, by the way? It was 1-1. Okay, okay. Ah, amazing. Uh, uh, yeah, the, uh, it was, uh, the goal was scored by Kenny Dalglish, actually. It was 1-1. But I think it was an exhibi- exhibition match, wasn't it? it it's kind of, kind of an exhibition match. Yeah. But where I was, going back to the, to the question, where I was going with your family is because what I, I mean, it's good that you said yes, um, that you have. So it's four children. What I was going to ask uh, Dr. Hassan is, would you say that having your own children uh, makes you more sympathetic and, and, and inspires you to be... <sighs> How can I say you can put yourself in, in, in the shoes of the desires of your of your patients, of the people that come to you, you know, saying, hey, I've had this many mi- miscarriages. I really want to have a child. You know, the fact that you've OK, you've come from a big family yourself, but now you have your own children. You, you, you're a father. Would you say that that helps on the emotional level? 
Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And and um, I love my job, actually, Nate. It's it's one of the most kind of I feel privileged, actually, because um, the kind of experience that you give to these couples who have lost so many babies um, is, is kind of unbelievably rewarding when you get it right. Um, uh, and uh, I kind of, some of my patients have become my friends. Um, actually, coincidentally, my mother is with us these days. So she's with us. She came recently to London and um, she could not believe it around Christmas, the number of hampers. Were, uh, she said, you can open up a shop. Uh, <laughs> oh, from, from previous patients. From grateful previous patients wow. who wow. still keep in touch years on, uh, you know, I, some of them, the children have gone to university and they still keep in touch. And it's just an, um, it's an, it's an amazing privilege. That is absolutely incredible. So it's, it's almost like they, they view you as part of their family somehow because you've helped them they do. fall pregnant they and, do. And, and, and so on. Wow. They so, do. They do. So you're you're the CEO and and the medical director now. Your clinic is called the CRC Clinic. So how how long has that actually been established now, and and where are you based? So yeah, it's called Center of, of Reproductive Immunology and Pregnancy, CRP, and I am based uh, mainly in Surrey, but I also have a practice in Harley Street in London, and I started the practice 15 years ago. Um, and uh, our practice is very unique because. As far as I am aware, we are the only uh, kind of specialized miscarriage kind of encompass clinic rather than, you know, a lot of doctors, as you know, in the UK here, they will practice in a, uh, within a private hospital so, um, or in a, in a room in Harley Street. But actually, we have a, a full building, a two-story building, where we actually cater for uh, couples with miscarriages purely uh, to try to investigate them, cutting edge investigations, try to identify the problem, help them with the treatment, and then hopefully get them successful until we discharge them back to having their babies uh, wherever they want to have it in the NHS or they want to go private. Um, so uh, my practice uh, is, is quite unique and I don't think there's anything like it in the world. That's absolutely amazing. So what I would like to ask is how, how many women, so you, says, you said 15 years, how many women, Dr. Hassan, would you say that you've helped over the years in, in their pregnancy? What, what kind of success rates would you say that you enjoy? So I also work on the NHS, Nate. So I work at um, Epsom and St. Helier, uh, University Hospitals in, in Surrey and South London. I'm also an honorary senior lecturer at St. George's Medical School. So I also have a, a miscarriage, dedicated miscarriage service uh, uh, on the NHS. So I see patients from all around the country. In the private sector, I see patients from all around the country and the world. So we get patients from, name it, you from, from, from the USA, from Australia, from New Zealand, from India, uh, from um, Middle East, Africa, Israel, everywhere in the world. I see patients. And I had patients, I recall uh, one of my patients actually, she actually moved from uh, from New York and came and lived in, in in Epsom just to be beside me, so I can look after her and treat her and until she had her baby. That's so, amazing. Um, so um, we uh, so I would say uh, you was asking about the numbers. I see between my NHS practice and my private practice, I see probably about. Um, 
Um, it's my dog barking. Sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> thank you. Uh, so I I, um, I I see between uh, I think around fifteen hundred patients a year, probably uh, of couples with miscarriages. Obviously, not everyone will fall pregnant, but our success rate is about eighty percent. So. Over the last 15 years, I'm in tens of thousands of, of couples I have looked after. That is incredible. And is it 80%, when you say an 80% success rate, is that of women, or it could be a couple thing, I don't know, um, uh, who have a specific subset of issues? Or is that just across all issues, regardless of what your issue is, 80% who can't fall pregnant or have a miscarriage will then go on to succeed? So, yeah, so the, the can't fall pregnant is a different scenario. So I'm talking about the, so couples who are able to fall pregnant but cannot keep a pregnancy like a miscarriage. Yes. So our success rate in the clinic is 80% average. Of course, if you're older or if mm. you have uh, particular complications, your success rate will be slightly lower. Mm. Um, and younger people have a slightly higher success rate, but also uh, there are certain type of miscarriages that have a better success rate. So if, if a, a woman miscarries between six and nine weeks, probably will have a better chances of success compared to a woman who miscarries, believe it or not, between four and six weeks, which will recall a chemical pregnancy or a later loss after 10 weeks mm. or a second trimester loss around 16 weeks. So there are some variations, but uh, the majority of couples miscarry between six and eight weeks. So that's the commonest type of miscarriage. And that's the one that has the best success rate. And I I always like to, 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 to kind of manage them as a couple. And mm-hmm. the reason I say that, because uh, one of the things I also know uh, is a problem for our care for couples with miscarriages is that the, the male partner gets forgotten. Mm. Uh, and actually, uh, that's quite kind of difficult for, for I find it, for partners because um, it, it can sometimes create difficulties in, in, eventually in relationships. I have seen couples who've gone through a lot of miscarriages that put a stress in their relationship eventually. Mm. And actually, even when we get it right and they have a success at the end, sometimes that relationship could actually be terminated because the trauma and the post-traumatic, the PTS they go through mm. with every loss. I've looked after couples with 30 miscarriages and 20 miscarriages. 30 Unheard miscarriages. Of. Wow. Yes. Um, so I, I always like to, we encourage them when they make an appointment to come and see me as a couple. We also in, uh, uh, investigate both of them. I, I, I always use a very simple kind of uh, um, saying. I say to them, look, it needs to do tango. So um, <laughs> you, you can't just assume it's a woman's fault or a woman's problem. You have to look into both partners. So I've been ahead in my time, I think, investigating men for miscarriages well before it became kind of more or less now acceptable to be investigated. Although sadly in the UK, we're still lagging behind in Europe in particular. Now investigating the male partner is, is fundamental for miscarriages. We investigate male partners for couples with, um, I am unable to afford pregnant for IVF. We want to know if they have enough sperms, the number of sperm and so on, but it comes from miscarriages. There is this, kind of old assumption teaching that uh, a sperm is good enough to achieve a pregnancy is good enough to carry on with the pregnancy, which is completely flawed. Mm. Wow. That's, that's deep. So I don't know if this is a, well, it could be a controversial question, but then getting to the science of it, could it be 
theoretically possible that the woman herself is perfectly capable of falling pregnant, but not with man A, but with man B, it would work. Ooh. <laughs> so let me give you a little bit of a, a kind of understanding slightly. So we now know that uh, a sperm can repair an egg and an egg can repair a sperm. And the association of damage to a sperm on an egg is strongly related to age and other environmental factors and health factors like smoking, alcohol, etc. But let's take age as an example. So you can have um, a gentleman who is 60 will have a perfectly easy pregnancy outcome, normal pregnancy child following um, a relationship with uh, or uh, kind of a pregnancy with uh, a young lady, let's say, in her 30s, because that young egg will repair the old sperm. So if that gentleman, for example, theoretically, the partner is 45, the chances are lower if the partner uh, uh, is better if the partner was younger and vice versa. So if you have a, a, a young a, a lady who is 42 and the partner is, say, in their 20s they, or 30s, then they will have a better chance of success mm-hmm. uh, compared if the, if the partner has a, is kind of a similar age or older. So that's why sometimes we see a lot of, uh, I don't want to be sounding controversial, but you see sometimes in a lot of Hollywood stories about kind of, um, you know, famous actors in their 60s and 70s sometimes having a successful pregnancy outcome mm. with a younger with a younger uh, partner mm. and the, the reason for that because that young that that young age uh, young egg will help repair the sperm now this does not mean there is a problem with if of incompatibility because i i ask i get asked that a lot so can i fall pregnant with that partner a or partner b but actually theoretically um, and this will sound controversial if that woman with a miscarriage partner is younger, maybe she would have had a better outcome. That is quite incredible. But uh, as well, flipping that Hollywood scenario on its head, I mean, you could even, could you have a situation where a woman is 50 and she's thinking, hey, I'm going to go after a, a 20 year old or a 18 year old because his young sperm will will repair my older egg or is that you know obviously as long as she hasn't gone through the menopause yet i mean or is that just that's uh, exactly that yeah yeah exactly that's the problem is the menopause so we know fertility drops dramatically with women once they hit 45 um so i think if you if you take a scenario rather than use the the 50 if you use a 42 uh then yes she will have a better chance that is absolutely remarkable. Well, <laughs> I'm sure a lot of the listeners have, have learned something for the first time. That is, that's really, really quite uh, interesting. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm not advocating a partner to, to ditch them. <laughs> I'm not advocating that at all. No, 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 not, neither am I. That's, uh, that's, that's good that you clarified that, Dr. Hassan. <laughs> that's, uh, that's very good that you, uh, that you clarified that. But I mean, what, what would you say is the most common issue? If there is a most common issue, either with the woman or the, 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 the couple, what what is it, or is is everyone really just unique with their own set of problems? Of course, of course, everybody is unique. But I think, for me, and I think that's also one of the problems we have with the difficulties in investigating recurrent miscarriages. It, it seems to be still people think it's controversial. But for me, in my books, as as an expert in that field, the commonest problem is 
uh, reproductive immunology. So your immune system uh, wrongly, so the woman's immune system wrongly thinks the pregnancy is foreign and attack the pregnancy. And for me, autoimmune problems like thyroid disease or um, something like lupus or rheumatoid arthritis, any of these common immune problems, sometimes they can make the patient more prone to, um, to rejecting the pregnancy and cause recurrent miscarriages. Of course, there are some people who will have other problems like you know, uh, uh, hormonal problems like polycystic ovaries, or there is a male factor where you, there is the sperm DNA damage, etc. But if you look at percentages, I think 60% of causes are due to the immune system, 20% is due to hormonal system, and only about 2 to 3% is for the sticky blood problems. And one of the sticky, sticky blood problems is, is you kind of historically people thought it was the commonest problem, and that's what people investigate. But I recently wrote a paper which actually waiting for it to be accepted for publications in the BMJ. Um, it's actually, hopefully, within the next week or so, mm. uh, we will hear about it, is, um, is to be to show that actually sticky blood is not a major cause as people used to think it is. Mm, so just, just 3% of cases are because of sticky blood. Correct. Okay. So I think the immune system, and the immune system basically um, is a very interesting relationship between the immune system. So I always say to people, think about why would someone need to have immune therapy to accept the kidney from their, from their identical twin while a body or a womb of a woman will accept a fetus which has a complete foreign genetic material coming from the father mm. and sometimes these days with egg donation, completely foreign, genetically foreign to the body, mm. get accepted. So the relationship between the immune system has always been interesting uh, of how it kind of tolerated pregnancy and accepted. So for me, my theory is that the immune system wrongly thinks the pregnancy is foreign. And one of the things I have created is this notion, which people didn't think about it before, that the principle of treatment has to start pre-pregnancy because historically people used to be treating miscarriages by giving medication, irrespective, let's put aside what you think the cause is and what the treatment is. But they used to treat the patient when they see a baby's heart at six weeks. And then they moved on to say, okay, let's treat you when you have a positive pregnancy test. Of course, it's absolute rubbish nonsense because there is no referee in the body to, to say to this pathology that is there, attack the pregnancy when the woman discovers, she, discovers she's pregnant. Because we know that the physiological changes of pregnancy will start in the body well before the woman knows she's pregnant. So we're assuming you have this pathology, whatever you call it, pathology X. So pathology X will wait for Mrs. X to discover she's pregnant and then will attack. So you have to start your treatment before she conceives. Otherwise, it's too late. I'm just thinking on my feet here for a moment. Now, you said that the father's... Uh, uh, sperm obviously impregnates the the egg and that means that yeah. that you know there's roughly 50 percent i don't know if the science exactly is 50 50 but roughly 50 percent of this this uh, genetic makeup then is is foreign so would so then let's hypothesize here with an ivf treatment where both the egg and the sperm are from different people where even the egg is not the is not the woman's 
egg donation. Would that yeah. not mean that we should expect a statistical significance if we were to analyze the pregnancies of an IVF uh, pregnancy where 100% of the DNA is foreign? Would we then not expect a higher rate of, of failure in, in those pregnancies than where only 50% of the genetic material is foreign? Very good question. And the answer is no, it doesn't happen. So that's why I say that isn't that kind of an amazing, whoever you, whatever you believe in, but nature is amazing. How does that womb not reject the, the foreign fetus? Isn't that amazing? It's absolutely incredible. Incredible. So, and that's why for people who do not believe in the theory of the immune system being an important cause of miscarriage, I say to them, so what keeps the pregnancy? <laughs> it has to have a very sophisticated immune system that will allow that pregnancy to succeed. And therefore, very simple thinking that it is not a kind of difficult to, to, uh, uh, to comprehend that if th- there must be sometimes a defect in that mechanism that is so amazingly recognizing the pregnancy uh, uh, to keep it there, that sometimes if this immune system is slightly more active, therefore can then wrongly identify the pregnancy as foreign. Because that's what happens with autoimmune diseases. So when a patient develops rheumatoid arthritis, what happens? Your immune system thinks the cartilage in a joint is foreign and attack it and cause a miscarriage, uh, sorry, and cause an inflammation. So it's the same principle here that your body is just waiting for this pregnancy to work because that's what it's supposed to do. But if it becomes more active, then it might say, oh, this is foreign now. I need to act on it. And that's why you cause a miscarriage. And our job then is to calm these cells down for a certain period of time to allow the body to recognize the pregnancy safely. And then the pregnancy will carry on. And is that so done we, on, basically? On... Sorry. No, I was just sorry to interrupt you there, Dr. Hassan. And is that done on drugs? Is that how you uh, suppress? On, yes, mainly on drugs, yes. Drugs and nutrition and stuff, yes. So mainly we use immune suppressive drugs, correct. So if a woman is listening to, to, to our conversation, um, and maybe let's just say she's had, I mean, you said you've dealt with people who, who have had 30 miscarriages. I mean, that's just, that blows my mind. But let's just imagine a woman's listening now or someone is listening uh, to us and they know people who have had three, four, five, ten 10 miscarriages and they're thinking, goodness me, I'm just emotionally devastated from all of this uh, that I've gone through, all this PTSD and so on. How, you know, they walk into your clinic, they might be thinking, well, what happens next? I mean, h- how do you go about establishing if you can help someone or, or, or not? Is anyone even a lost cause? Can you look at someone and say, no, sorry, you're, you're a lost cause? Never, never lost cause. Um, so we will help whoever we, uh, whoever comes to us and we are most of the time was successful. And the the difficulties I have is at the moment is that the, the, the sophistication of these tests is making it difficult for me to say, for example, treat somebody, uh, say in in Sudan because I can't do these tests uh, in Sudan. So um, I will encourage people to look up my website, which is www.crpclinic.co.uk. C for Charlie, R for Romeo, P for um, Papa, and have a look at the possible causes, the tests we do. Um, and uh, for the UK patients, they can come and see me on the NHS or you can get their GP referral. So we are on the system for uh, national referrals as a tertiary centre or they can come and see me in my private clinic 
um, and what we do when the couples come. So we have a very robust system. So the first visit, so we tell them when they book the appointment, do not get pregnant, please, because you remember my philosophy that we need to treat before you fall pregnant. And actually, we, are, we, are, we also now know that with every miscarriage, your risk of miscarriage next time goes up by 10%. Mm. So the more you try, so actually that old-fashioned approach of try again, honey, is not a good thing. Uh, it actually could be more damaging. So uh, we, we will investigate you in, on your first visit. Mm. We, send, we, will send, we will send a questionnaire. They fill up the questionnaire. They come in. We will encourage them to bring as many tests with them that they've had done elsewhere because some people would have visited somewhere else. And so we can cut the cost as well of these tests. Um, and then we will do the relevant tests. And then we see them two weeks later with the results and put a plan of action. Uh, the woman will mainly have blood tests. We will have a scan to assess her womb, uh, her ovarian reserve. And then the gentleman will have something called sperm DNA fragmentation integrity test. Um, and then we see them two weeks later with the results, and then we put a plan of action, and they can start straight away. Uh, so the challenge for us is, of course, is getting pregnant. That's that's not the purpose of this treatment. The purpose of this treatment is to keep the pregnancy. Once they get pregnant, they then we will follow them up with the treatment and with the scans on a regular basis every two weeks. And then when they reach 16 weeks, we will mostly withdraw all the treatments because by 16 weeks, the placenta is amazing in protecting the pregnancy. Mm. And by that time, we withdraw the treatment. So a few years ago, um, I was kind of a little bit stuck with some patients. So I, I, you probably have seen some of kind of uh, some patients' news made the national media, like the BBC uh, and the newspapers. So a few years ago, I had this couple with recurrent miscarriages and this couple had uh, 18 miscarriages. And I've tried them with the standard treatment at the time I had was prednisone and steroids. So steroids, although sounds like a complex treatment, is actually it's the same drug we use for asthma, for kidney transplant, for lupus. And so it's a wide kind of spectrum, anti, uh, a kind of a, a anti-immune drug or an immune suppressor. And this couple, uh, it didn't work twice, the treatment. And I then was scratching my head one day and I said, it looks like she needs more support uh, because we've investigated everything else is normal. Even the miscarriage progress of conception we sent to the lab and it came back genetically normal. So obviously, that's not the reason why they lost the pregnancy. There must be something else. And, and then, coincidentally, that same month while I'm th think, thinking about this couple, I had two patients who come to see me with recurrent miscarriages with a condition known as uh, articaria. So they get hives, basically. I don't know if you know hives. So your skin goes into eruption, uh, scratching everywhere. And, and hives or articaria is autoimmune condition. And they could pinpoint when they have their hives, when the baby died, by the minute. So actually, they say the baby died that day. We do the scan and you measure the baby. Exactly that's when the baby died. Mm. And, and one of the drugs we give for articaria or hives is a, is, is a drug called hydroxychloroquine. Now, hydroxychloroquine, some of your listeners may know about it because we use it a lot for conditions like malaria. Mm, it's COVID, right? Uh, and, uh, and recently had a, <laughs> this interesting reputation by uh, President Trump when he claimed that it works for COVID, but we now know it doesn't. Mm. Um, and, and then on the, 
during that same month, uh, landed on my desk a paper for me to review on patients with lupus and pregnancy loss. And while I was reading that paper, I came across that the patients who had hydroxychloroquine with active disease, they fared better in pregnancy outcome compared to those with lupus who were not taking hydroxychloroquine or even when the disease was quiet. So for me, it suggested to me that maybe hydroxychloroquine has a positive impact in protecting the pregnancy. And thinking about articaria and hydroxychloroquine, so I said to those patients, let me try this drug, see if that would work for you. Because my theory here that your articaria, because your immune system suddenly becomes aggressive, is also attacking the pregnancy. And boom, they were successful. And then I used that drug to those couple with the 18 miscarriages as a second line drug, and they were successful. And since then, it has been one of my main drugs I use. I'm just trying to compute this again. It's, it's almost a bit like the, your earlier personal stories, and I'm, I'm almost speechless because there's so many things I'm trying to work out right now. I mean, 18 miscarriages. Now, going back, you said a few minutes ago, Dr. Hassan, that each time you have a miscarriage, the chance of a miscarriage in the following time is 10% higher. Is that correct? Correct. So let's just assume that the baseline, let's let's say there's a, a couple, you know, Mr. and Mrs. whatever, uh, Javier, you know, and their chance of having a miscarriage is, I don't know, 40%. But they have a miscarriage. Yeah. So that means that the next time is 44%, right? Correct. And then 48.8% uh, uh, or whatever it is. And then, so, and then the curve, if you draw a graph, it's going up, not up exponentially, up up. but it's going up and up and up, right? So the, the point I'm trying to say is that the, the, the people with 18 miscarriages, even if they started on a baseline of, I don't know, 30%, uh, I can't do that in my head right now, but like that's, that's quite a, a steep jump, right? By, by it, the 18th attempt, that's going to be a very high chance of a miscarriage. Absolutely. And, and I've treated people with 32 miscarriages. I've had somebody who's successful after 32 miscarriages. And of course, we say 10% um, kind of in general uh, uh, the assumption here that nature at some stage it will plateau, of course. Um, but yes, so uh, you know, I, I, when I see somebody with that, with those numbers, and I because I'm a tertiary service, I, it is not uncommon in our clinic. We'll have every clinic will have somebody with ten or more miscarriages. That's not uncommon at all. And and even with people like that, so people who are here listening and they thought, well, like, you know, they're devastated. They've had ten miscarriages or even twelve or fifteen. You're you're basically saying, hey, no, you, you've still got good chances. Yes. Yes. That is that if is, they get the right if they get the right investigation and the right treatment and the right approach. Mm, that is that is truly heartwarming for for so many. Whilst you, you were talking about um, the the certain drugs and so on that they've even tried for COVID, just to briefly touch on COVID because it's obviously such a hot topic right now. There, there's been reports that I've read that COVID vaccinations can sort of mess up or interfere with women's cycles. I mean, what is the evidence for that? We're collecting evidence at the moment. So actually, I think in Southampton University, they're collecting the evidence, but it is definitely true because I'm have. i looking, as you know, I deal with women every day. So we have noticed that no doubt it affects the cycle. Um, thankfully, it looks like short-lived. So just for a month or two. Um, but it does not mean that people who are trying for pregnancy should avoid vaccination because the benefit of vaccination outweighs the small chance because not every women who get vaccinated will have, a, will have a cycle affected. So it's quite a few women, not common at all, um, but it does happen. 
But the benefit of the vaccination, of course, outweighs that risk of a, a cycle or two being messed up a little bit because we have noticed that uh, almost exclusively all the women who have had bad outcomes of pregnancy because of COVID infection are unvaccinated women. Mm, that's very interesting. Very, very interesting stuff. Wow. So I actually, we currently have a patient in our hospital which has just been admitted last week with severe COVID in needing intensive care. Thankfully, she's fine now, but um, unluckily she was 36 weeks, so we, we, could, del- we could deliver her quickly uh, because the baby's age is fine, uh, but she was unvaccinated. And, and, and these days, we don't see a lot of patients. So when we pre-vaccination, so with that wave last year, before the vaccination started, you know, November, December, we had really, really bad outcomes, very young, fit, healthy women with no pre-existing medical disorders who unfortunately died Mm. uh, um, because of COVID infection. Since the vaccination, the numbers have gone down and it looks now exclusively 90% of the women who are in intensive care or have had to have intensive treatment or high dependency treatment uh, are unvaccinated or are unvaccinated. Some have had uh, double vaccination, but no booster in recently, but mainly unvaccinated. Mm, yeah, it definitely seems to be statistically significant uh, in, in that regard. Yeah. yeah. Getting uh, one other thing that was just crossing my mind. So you said you started 15 years ago. So I assume you're probably getting to the time now where some of these uh, babies that you help bring into the world uh, are getting into their, you know, their teenage years, 16, 17. So have you met any of them and and, and, I have. and spoke to them, I you know, where the parents yeah. have said, hey, this is the, the man that helped us, you know, uh, have a successful pregnancy. And I mean, that must be super emotional. Uh, absolutely. I have uh, amazing feeling. Yes, I do. And I meet them. And unfortunately, I used to meet them a lot. But of course, of COVID now, we're not allowing children to come to the clinic. Right. So I don't see them. But a lot of them come back for their second baby or the third baby. Uh, coming to show me, uh, you know, they come with them and say, you know, Mr. Shahata, this is one of your successes. Or, or sometimes even some of them I've delivered myself, uh, which is an amazing feeling. Um, so, yes, and I love sometimes being stopped in on Epsom High Street by some of my patients and say, oh, this is, you know, you remember, you know, Amelia or Nathan or something like that, you know, uh, and they're now... Uh, teenagers amazing that is absolutely absolutely amazing very very heartwarming stuff and do you know i can't help but feel because i mean i'm still kind of speechless and my brain is still going at 100 miles an hour because of all the things you told me earlier about your time in sudan do you think that in a maybe this is just me but some kind of a connection going on because obviously you went through such a i mean it's an amazing time you had in sudan but the that time in the ghost houses and the prisons it sounds like six months or whatever you know near-death experiences and what have you you know, from going from that to, you know, to this this life that you have now where you're helping so many people bring life into the world compared to what you were going through for that six-month period where you were watching life leave the world, it's almost like uh, it's, it's, it's a complete diversion, a 180-degree turn. And um, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, because of all those intense things that you experienced, would you say that you've almost channeled that energy into, into you know, offering this beautiful thing to people? Uh, is, it, is it in some way motivated you or made you feel more thankful for the life that you're living? Uh, uh, absolutely. And, and I think um, it made me also um, kind of 
you not only appreciate life, but um, that kind of never give up because I feel I'm lucky that I'm here and I'm alive after what I've been through. And, and therefore, I feel like I have a purpose to, 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 to this life. And my purpose is to help kind of people who are unable to bring life um, and, and complete their families. And I see it as a privilege. Uh, so I, every time a couple come and see me, I just feel privileged. And I say, gosh, aren't I lucky that I can see such complexities uh, of, 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 compli- uh, of, of, of pregnancy history. But at the same time, these couples are giving me an opportunity to help them, which of course makes me feel good. And that's an amazing, uh, amazing feeling to uh, that first scan at six weeks when you scan a couple. And for the first time after, say, 10 or 12 or 15 miscarriages, hearing the baby's heart, you, you have to be there, Nate, to, to, to kind of appreciate that feeling. It is unbelievable. At the same time, every time a couple lose a pregnancy under my care, uh, believe it or not, I still feel very sad and, and, and kind of difficult to, to kind of uh, to, to, to forget. Uh, and, uh, um, and, and sometimes that's how I come up with this new treatment. I'm always thinking ahead. I'm always focusing. Uh, and, and I also use some of the bad experiences in kind of in the ghost houses. We spoke earlier about the, the traumatic experience about sleep deprivation. I don't sleep a lot, Nate. So uh, if I make four hours a day, I'm lucky uh, because that's one of the problems I have inherited from that situation. Uh, not that I get nightmares or anything like that, but uh, it just becomes a problem for me to sleep. So I do most of my work writing up, studying, exploring when the house is quiet at night. So I like my football. I can watch a match or I watch the news. And then I probably start working at midnight until about two or three o'clock in the morning. Uh, and then maybe have a couple of hours sleep. Uh, so, and that's actually therefore gives me that time because some people tell me, so uh, if I tell you what I do on a daily basis, so I have my own private practice, which I run as a business. I run it as a doctor. I also work on the NHS. I'm also very academic. I publish a lot of papers. I, you know, I have published in one of the most influential paper in the world, journal in the world, the New England Journal of Medicine. That's kind of research that not, you know, lots of researchers would never ever have an opportunity even to publish one paper mm. there. I, I also sit at the Royal College of Obstetricians Council representing the MENA region. So I have a kind of international kind of um, uh, purse that I have to look after my uh, constituents. And that's also, uh, that's the kind of a post I achieved by election. I've recently been appointed as, as the clinical director and lead for Southwest London Maternal Medicine Network. So I'm supposed to be planning the strategy of looking after women with complex medical disorders uh, in four of the uh, four South Hos- Southwest London hospitals and another four Surrey hospitals. So I have a lot of things that I do on a daily basis. But at the same time, 
I also do a lot of other things. Um, and I'm, I also feel like I'm a family man. I, I, I have to say, when I was young, I missed a lot of my um, children's nativity plays and things like that. And that's not because I didn't want to be there, but that's, that's the nature of how our jobs were, because my wife is also a Dr. Selma. So she used to work in Oxford and I used to work in London and we had, you know, one or two children. And uh, those days we used to do 72 hours on a weekend continuously. Not un unlike these days, I think the changes that happens to junior doctors' rotors have made things much better. Uh, we used to work uh, five days a week and you will do three registers. So the on-call was one in three. So you do a Monday on-call, Tuesday, Wednesday until five o'clock. And then on Thursday, you're on call again. Friday, you're, you're working normal date until five. And then Saturday, Sunday, you're on call again. And, and that was our lives. So we used to do 100 hours. That was normal in those days. So therefore, I missed a lot with my two sons who are the elder ones. And I regret that. But that was unfortunately the kind of the jobs. that done. a lot of doctors will tell you that's unfortunately was the situation. Uh, with my daughters, because I was older and I became a consultant, I had more time. Thankfully, these things have changed for junior doctors. So the hours are now much better. Family life is more recognized now. Um, so, yeah, so I, I like, and I, as you know, I'm going to talk about this in a minute, of course, I know, uh, is I like my holidays as well <laughs> and my travel. Absolutely. I'm going to, I want that, maybe it's my last question, maybe. Um, just before asking you that, uh, Dr. Hassan, I mean, it's, it's very evident. Um, you, you know, you live such a full life um, you know, you're, a, it seems that you're a people person, you, you know, you love the people that you meet and work with. And it's quite evident from what you said, I feel that you, you take both the, the joys and, and even unfortunately the sadness is home with you sometimes, you know, depending on what happens. And it's, it's nice for the, uh, for the clients that come to see you to know that, you know, you, you, you're, you, you know, they have the human element with you, you know, um, uh, along in their ride. And, and that's so important to, to many who, you know, it's not just a, a scientific thing or, it's it, it affects the emotions so much. I mean, going through a, a miscarriage for so many is uh, is is such a traumatic thing, and it's just interesting that you can go through that for all the years and and take all of these emotions on. You know, both the joys and the uh, and the sadnesses is quite incredible, actually. Uh, and I mean, do you intend to to carry on practicing for for many years to come? <laughs> so uh, I I so I'm 57 now, uh, Nate, and I would like to retire at the age of 60 and that's my intention um and so i'm currently planning for uh, kind of how to to keep the practice successful uh keeping helping the women because as i said i feel my practice is unique and i don't want to prevent kind of uh couples from from what we have built over the years mm. so i i've already appointed uh, uh some colleagues um to help uh, with uh, with running the practice, and what I'm trying to do over over the next few years is to see if I can have a practice that women and men coming to see uh, my colleagues and get the same service, if you like. So they're not coming to see, in particular, Mr. Shahata. I want them to come to a, a clinic, and I, I've been thinking about this for a long time because. I don't think it's never a good system for things to just rely on one person because, you know, I could drop, drop that tomorrow or if I want to retire. And I want the practice uh, 
and the helping of women to, uh, and, and men to carry on of these couples. So that's what I'm currently doing over the next three years is I want to put a robust system that would allow me to, to do that. Mm, that's beautiful. And then even maybe when you are retired, you can still, you know, peer in and see all the, all of the success stories and, 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 you know, keep one hand on it, so to speak, and still experience a lot of that joy, even though, you know, there, there's others perhaps spearheading the work that, that, that you are doing now. Of course, my wife and my practice manager, they think that would never happen. They think I'll be working. <laughs> uh, well, it's either that or, or going on a, on a big worldwide travel tour. Is it, another thing I'd like to point out as well, which I'm sure the listeners have, have realized. I mean, what an amazing romantic story as well, you know, to, with Salma. You know, you, you, there you, you are. You meet in, in medical school, 18, 19, 20, 21. You fall in love. You get engaged. Oh, sorry, uh, babe, I'm, I've got to leave Sudan. Uh, I don't know when I'm going to see you again. <laughs> But, uh, you know, hopefully we're going to get married. And then, I don't know, how many years later was it, by the way, that you, you, you got married? We got married actually uh, the next year, actually. Oh, um, it, was, uh, it was the next year. Uh, okay, okay. Yeah, but you know what? We never had a wedding. So uh, we, we've never, ever had a wedding because... But, but you're married? I or? wasn't... Uh, yeah, we're married now, yeah. But we, we actually, so... How, how can you be married Islamic, without a wedding? So in Islamic culture, you can actually have the ceremony done uh uh with a representative on your behalf so uh so somebody can represent you your father so that you know that that the signing up of the papers those days we didn't have zoom we didn't have uh, uh, ms teams so uh so you can have a representative of your family usually your father or your uncle or your grandfather and sometimes you normally the elderly of the family can represent you so people do that even while you're present as kind of a a gesture of respect for the grand, the, the grandfather. They will sit uh, with the father of the bride, and they say, you know, they go in and they ask the bride, "Do you want to marry him?" Uh, with with the imam, and then they will ask the 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 the, the groom, um, uh, "Do you, are you happy to marry?" And they can do it on your behalf. So what we did is that I have written. Uh, there is a f- certain format you do. So you, you've written a. A, a, a letter confirming that you are uh, asked your grandfather to represent you, and this is what I did uh, as uh, for the marriage. So, so we had the, if you like, the ceremony in Khartoum, and then Salma flew to Cairo to meet me for the honeymoon. So, I mean, in, in your case, who 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 married Salma on your behalf? My grandfather. <laughs> so, I mean, but with, my, my, with my name, but he he signs on my behalf. So, I mean, you weren't at your own wedding? I didn't have a wedding. I didn't have a party. No, I couldn't because I was in excited, wasn't I? So, so <laughs> no, it's, it's just, it's a hilarious concept for me. I'm, I'm just thinking, you know. It's a, it's a hilarious concept, exactly. And can you imagine, of course, you know, we, you know, Sudan is a Muslim country. So no chance that Salma's parents would allow her to travel to Egypt kind of, of course, on her yeah. own and mm. unmarried woman. Uh, without uh, you know, kind of knowing what's happening. So, so yeah, we got married in 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 in, in Cairo. Uh, kind of the wedding. So we had a small party in Cairo with my uncle, etc. But actually, the, the the official ceremony was done in in Sudan. It's very funny. Uh, I, I, in, I, I, in my absence, so we I, we've never had a wedding. I'm just thinking of a hypothetical situation. You know, for myself or one of my friends, maybe you know, maybe myself. If I'm going to get married in in the future. Maybe that weekend, maybe Liverpool are playing or, you know, I want to be somewhere else. I can, I can be like, babe, don't worry. You can marry my, my dad, my dad, marry my dad instead, you know, but you're marrying me, but my dad's going to be there. I'm going to be off partying with the boys. 
You know? Yeah, exactly. That. <laughs> it's just <laughs> it's absolutely <laughs> absurdly funny. I mean, I, I, uh, wow, I I'm going to have to research this. this uh, it's a great yeah, idea. Yeah, yeah. No, no, yeah, fantastic. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> wow, well, you learn something every day. So, I mean, getting to, to travel, last question for you, Dr. Hassan. Where's next on your on your travel list? So I, um, so, you know, after that, uh, after the COVID pandemic, I, um, I got quite a bad COVID in March, 2020. So I was one of the first people who got, who got COVID infection. And I remember at the time I, I was saying to my colleagues in the hospital, because at the time there was no, the tests were very difficult, if you recall, to get tested those days, very early March. 2020 and i i didn't have fever i didn't have cough but i lost sensation of taste and smell at the time nobody knew about these signs mm. and i said this is not normal i remember i had severe muscle ache to the extent that when i wanted to go to the toilet i used to crawl on the floor mm. it was that bad damn that's bad anyway so we had a very bad covid year as doctors and on the nhs as you know and um in December 2020, when we had the second wave, very depressing times, it was called. And I remember I was uh, watching One Dead TV, uh, one of those uh, kind of sun holidays, whatever it is on B. I can't remember what the program was. And, and I just took my band back to my lovely travels to Brazil and, and Thailand and Jamaica. So I tried to immerse myself in a beach holiday mm. in the middle of the winter. And I picked up the phone. I actually, you know, I WhatsApp somebody I know in Italy because I love Italy. I've been to Italy quite a lot. So I know somebody in Italy and I said to her, Camilla, she lives in Rome. I want to buy a house in Italy. And um, where do you think I should buy a house? And she said, I would suggest Sardinia or the Amalfi Coast. And then when I told her my budget, she said, no, Amalfikos is a little bit out of your, <laughs> of your league. <laughs> but Sardinia, I said, that's nice. I've never been to Sardinia. And I started reading about Sardinia and the blue zone and, you know, the people, you know, kind of people live there forever and things yeah. like that. And it's amazing. Yeah. Mm. So I started researching. And then guess what? Four months later, I bought a house in Sardinia. And I've been now working on the house um, to try to, because this house has not been lived for over 25 years. Very sad story, actually, with that house, uh, Nate, that the owners um, bought it as their holiday home. And they live about an hour and a half away from the house. Uh, it's on the top of a mountain and in the Costa Esmeralda with a lovely uh, sea view. And their son used to love going there. And in one trip, going there, he had a road traffic accident and died. Oh, that's terribly uh, sad. Very sad. And he was 20. That was 25 years ago. Mm. And they decided not to go back to the house again. They were probably traumatized, so the house weren't they? Traumatized. Mm. And the house has been empty since then. So, uh, so it needs a little bit of work. And um, so I think I'm going to be spending next year going and coming from uh, Costa Esmeralda in Sardinia quite a lot. So that's really my main travels is going to be. I have few, uh, I'm going in March to Jordan and Egypt uh, for conferences. Um, and I'm hoping, I'm hoping that later in on the year, we might go to, as a family holiday, 
we probably want to go to the US or uh, Costa Rica. We haven't decided yet as a family, but there are, I'd like to see some places I haven't seen. Mm. Um, so I, I'd love to go to Costa Rica and, 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 and Argentina and, and these places because I've only tasted Brazil from that kind of part of the world. Yeah, Brazil's it's, fantastic, it's, uh, isn't it? Amazing, amazing. And I would love to go back to, to the Caribbean because uh, my son Eamon's wife, Sarah, she, uh, she's um, half uh, English, half from Trinidad and Tobago. Oh, fantastic. And Yes, and we would like to go there as well. So maybe tri- uh, Trinidad and Tobago as well. Yeah. So we haven't decided yet, but we're definitely not going to be here in uh, in december next year we definitely want to go somewhere that's 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 good to know yeah no tnt trinidad is fantastic in fact i, I did a podcast with someone on trinidad it's and I, I went there myself it's a beautiful part of the world lovely food lovely people vibe it's, it's incredible um, uh, absolutely and i actually listened to that podcast in particular because i wanted to know a little bit more about it so oh, fantastic. Yeah, so it, it made me more wanting to go there so uh, i think uh, early summer uh, April, I'll be going to Sardinia and then uh, probably go to, the, uh, over the Christmas, we'll probably go to Trinidad and Tobago or Costa Rica. We'll see. With with your house in Italy, just regressing quickly, um, you said 25 years it was vacant. So did you, who did you buy it from? Did you buy it from the original parents or had, had somehow you... Yeah, had- yeah, the, yeah, the original parents are still there. And, um, and actually... Uh, you know, Italians love kind of family values. Oh, yeah. And when I when I bought the house, the, the gentleman is 85 and his wife is, I think, 75. And they invited me to their house once when we, did, when we signed the deeds. And when I went to the house, I could not believe it. It's like a shrine for their son, Fabrizio, his name. And, um, and the villa is called Villa Fabrizio. And the mother was showing me this is Fabrizio's kind of school report. This is Fabrizio's helmet. This is Fabrizio's. Uh, she still talks about Fabrizio's like a shrine, the house. And, and I said to them, I became very emotionally kind of affected by the whole scenario. And I said to them, and at the time I didn't know, I said, why is it called Villa Fabrizio? And they explained to me what happened. And I saw the pictures and I said, you know what? I'm going to keep the name. I will keep it as Villa Fabrizio. Wow. And and they started crying and hugging me. And uh, that's during COVID times as well. That necessitates it. That, that, what an incredibly absolutely. beautiful story. Absolutely. And, and, absolutely. And I didn't have a hug for a long time. And I thought I was really, really <laughs> emotional about it. And actually then what they did, they started ringing their cousins and their friends from the neighborhood. And everybody was coming to say hello and, and hug me so that I'm going to keep the, the name. And I thought that was... The least I can do with what you've told me. You've lost your son. Wow. That's uh do you know what? That's that's one of the most touching moments of this podcast for me. I mean, that is just beautiful. That's overwhelming. I mean, you could almost make a so, movie just out of that, I think. I, I, it's unbelievable. So uh, so hopefully one day, Nate, I will invite you to Villa Fabrizio when it's ready for uh, to, uh, to receive guests. Because I, at the moment, it's a little bit of work. I would absolutely love to. I mean, I'm, I'm not even joking. I would 100% take you up on it. I've been to Italy, I think, 10 times now. And and yeah, when it's all done, I would absolutely love that. That would be absolutely beautiful. Beautiful to experience, to, to come to Villa Fabrizio. And hopefully bring your father with you so we can talk about Comboni and Sudan. Absolutely. Absolutely. That would be absolutely... I mean, what another amazing coincidence that, that uh, after I contacted you, it's only then that I found out that you went to the same college as my father. Another amazing yeah. coincidence. No, but seriously, though, Dr. Hassan, it's, it's been a genuine, genuine pleasure. I, I genuinely mean that. It's been 
I've just loved our time together. I've loved this podcast. It's I think it's gone over an hour and a half and I've just, it's just flown. I've just loved every minute of it. And I, I just want to emphasize that I really do wish you and, and your clinic, the CRP clinic, all the very best. You know, it must be so uh, deeply fulfilling uh, to help so many bring their own babies into the world. And I'm sure I speak on behalf of many who deeply appreciate the work that, that you do. So, Dr. Hassan, thank you very much. Thank you, Nate. And, 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 and actually, I, I, I cannot really finish this podcast without um, thanking you for, for this uh, kind of opportunity to, to tell some of this kind of what I went through. And, and I hope I can be of assistance to patients. But also, I would like to also not to, because I haven't really said a lot about my wife, but Selma uh, is just the most incredible woman. She's obviously the love of my life. She's mm. my soulmate. And I couldn't have done this without her because... She's a woman who, imagine, was told by someone that he's going to marry you some someday <laughs> and <laughs> accepted to have a wedding with no wedding and come to this foreign country that she's never been to to, to, to meet this man. Um, and, um, and also, she's like my mother. She gave up her career. She's a, you know, she's a doctor. When we had four kids, because of the difficulties we found with lack of support, we don't have family here. You know, we're immigrants. Uh, we found it very difficult to look after the kids. And we felt that if you bring children to life, it's your kind of responsibility to bring them up. We didn't really want to, them to be brought up by kind of nannies and, 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 and you know, uh, kind of um, uh, child-minded. Not that something wrong with it, but that's not kind of what we wanted. And so Salma gave up her career just to look after the kids and support me. And she's just been amazing and i i and and actually currently she's in khartoum mm. attending a, a wedding there but i would like to just send her my all my love uh, she's just the, the most incredible woman and she's also very beautiful i'm a very lucky man <laughs> that is such a beautiful thing to, to to tie up on and i'm sure salma will uh, will listen to this one day and it will probably make her smile because that's a deeply romantic gesture uh, dr hassan <laughs> thank you very much nathan i wish you all the best thank you well my guest today was dr hassan shihata I'm sure many of you today would have absolutely loved listening to him. Uh, We've got to know him more as a person and also about his expertise. Now, if you are someone who has experienced the emotional pain from a miscarriage, please, please do not give up. Just as Dr. Hassan said, nobody is a lost cause. Contact Dr. Hassan at the CRP clinic. I'll leave it in the show notes. So please don't forget to check that out. And hopefully you too can be helped in your journey to parenthood. So please do remember to check out his website and read up for yourselves on his excellent rates of success. There are many beautiful and heartwarming stories that you can read for many he has helped over the years. Well, if you've enjoyed today's episode, please do share it with a family member or friend who you think would get something out of it, especially those who could benefit from seeing Dr. Hassan. And if you haven't already, please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And don't forget to follow and hit the bell notification if you haven't already. My name is Nate Ralph, and you've been listening to The Inquisitive Tourist.